Sound design. Once you really do the calibration and then you mix your song on this new reference sound, then the real test to whether we're bringing value to you is, hey, is it now translating better? Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the co-founder and VP of products at Sonarworks, Martins Popolis. Martins, welcome to Sound Design Live. Nathan, hey, excited to be here. All right, so Martins, I definitely want to talk to you about Reference 4 and um, uh, kind of the amazing stuff you can do with it. But before we do that, what is one of the first tracks you like to listen to after you get a system set up? Hmm. That's actually a good question because there is a specific track. My, and actually the favorite track of many of our team, is Rage Against the Machine Killing in the Name of. Okay. The good thing about the track and the good thing kind of, I mean, the important thing about the test track is its ability to kind of very quickly uncover you the reality of that particular sound system. So it's actually very important for that track to be kind of full with musical information as much as possible at all times across all the frequency range, right? I mean, the other extreme is is if you take just somebody, some track where there is a female voice singing maybe without a musical instrument or maybe with some kind of small sound in the background, that kind of a track is uh, often like a very hard thing to use to understand what the sound system sounds like. And this uh, Rage Against the Machine track is kind of all over the place from the first second. So you can kind of very quickly assess what's going on and also very quickly understand the AB of the kind of uh, calibration impact and very, very kind of uh, quickly get a feel for what's going on. Besides being a great song, of course, but uh, its uh, technical ability to show you the frequency response of the system is what's uh, more important when you talk about the test track. So, Sure. Um, so, Martins, how did you get your first job in audio? Like, what was your first paying gig? Short answer is uh, Sonarworks. Okay. <laughs> I got into audio through, founding, uh, through co-founding Sonarworks into a paying job at audio actually i don't uh, kind of uh, come from a very heavy musical background uh, before i kind of personally see that as an asset it's been extremely exciting to kind of learn to know what the world of audio looks from inside from the creator space i've been excited about all music and audio technologies before joining but i think kind of the fact that we actually came from outside the music industry was one of the reasons that kind of let us take a fresh look and get a fresh perspective at the problems and maybe offer uh, some kind of um, new solutions to the problems. But as I was thinking about this question, uh, what came to my memory was that kind of, uh, before I got into paying jobs in audio, in high school, I think the first gig in audio was that in the high school I was involved, we kind of had like this thing called Radio Center, which was a small kind of, I don't know, it was basically the small place in the school that 
hosted the school's audio gear and the intercom of the school, etc. So it was kind of let down and forgotten, but uh, me and a few friends, we were really excited about that for some reason. And we were also sometimes setting up the school kind of disco kind of party audio for uh, using the school's equipment. Uh, but so kind of we uncovered that place and for a while we had built a computer machine that when the break hit, then it started playing some music over the school's intercom. So we had like a few, uh, yeah, a few months of the happy time when the uh, break from the lesson was announced by uh, Pink Floyd being played <laughs> <so> loud <laughs> in the school's corridors. But then some, some, some teachers got kind of, uh, didn't like that their lesson is interrupted by Pink Floyd. So we got shut down, but that was my first involvement with kind of PA systems, I guess. Cool. So Martins, look, looking back on your career so far, I know a lot of things have, have happened since in between your first time, you know, playing around with some electronics and, and music in high school and then co-founding Sonarworks. Uh, and you had to make some choices along the way. So what do you think is one of the best decisions that you made to get more of the work that you really love? Quitting my previous job, I guess. <laughs> sure. How did you know that it was, I mean, as I was... How did you know that it was the right time to do that? Can you sort of take us to that moment? I mean, it was kind of, I think I was twice in my life in that situation, and it was always a sort of scary choice at the point in time, but both times I think it was kind of, um, yeah, the right thing to do. So I was right out of the university. I had I, I joined one uh, company and I was working with them. It was in environmental consulting, and uh, I was working with them for like three years or something, but at some point I just kind of realize that, hey, I really kind of don't feel in that particular setup that it's right for me to work for the company. And I would really like to try building a company rather than uh, working for one. And uh, yeah, I took the kind of uh, risky bet of quitting that job and uh, joining with my friends to actually start another non-music related company. That was, I think, also a very good choice that kind of opened the entrepreneurship drive in me so i haven't really worked for kind of a proper job since since then and then at some point this non-audio related company i kind of uh, was with that for something like seven years i think and then at some point i just thought to myself that hey i'm kind of i think i kind of know everything about this business and it's kind of uh, if i will be doing the same thing in five to ten years then i'll probably hate myself so i understood that there is there there really is no choice sure <laughs> So Martins, let's get into talking about the software. So a l there's a lot of other videos out there already, and you've done several other interviews about what Reference 4 is and kind mm -hmm. of how it works. And I, I saw that there are several videos on YouTube already of people sort of walking you through step by step of mm -hmm. what it does and what the results are. And so I think there's plenty of material out there already about that. But I haven't seen a whole lot of people talk about kind of what's under the hood. And since the Sound Design Live audience includes a lot of live sound engineers and a lot of people that also do measurement as part of their work and, you know, output processing, I think they would be interested to know kind of how does it work? So I was wondering if you could walk us through how it works and maybe what's some of the secret sauce beyond measurement and corrective EQ? Sure. To begin the objective of the reference product is obviously to remove all the coloration, right? Kind of, if you talk about the speakers in the room situation, then having measured too many professional studios and bedroom studios alike, 
I haven't really seen a completely neutral studio kind of from the first uh, measurement, meaning that, I mean, bedroom studios obviously have a ton of problems because they're not the right room and the setup options are limited and uh, the budget is limited. But if you talk about the big studios, then they also have their own problems, like the gear keeps changing and somebody is bringing in a new sofa and a new kind of uh, shelf and then the console has a lot of reflections and there are different issues in the big studios as well. So every studio I have seen so far could kind of have some benefit, bigger or smaller, of removing that kind of unnecessary coloration to the sound to give you a more accurate ability to hear of what you have really kind of mixed or produced or created musically in your track. And that is the objective. But then when you start to ask the question really about, so what is really the excess coloration? What is really that thing that you're trying to remove? Then you very quickly get to a realization that it really depends on the method of measurement. And then uh, very, one very important aspect to realize is that if you think about a measurement microphone and a human being, then these two things do not hear alike. Like measurement microphone lives in its, it lives in its own reality and in the measurement microphone's reality, if you measure a thing kind of uh, in one spot and then you move it for a couple of inches and then you measure another measurement and then you move it for a more couple of inches in your studio, you will get three completely different measurements frequency response wise because the frequency response of the room is uneven as seen by the measurement microphone. But for a human being, your reality is interpreted by your brain also in the audio domain obviously and it's a huge DSP actually living in your head doing magic tricks with interpreting the world for you. And uh, the way your brain is interpreting audio is it's actually not showing you the world of the measurement microphone. It's actually more like taking the average of all the sounds around you and all the kind of reflections coming from your body and from different areas of your room. So your brain is kind of constantly listening into an area around you and then kind of averaging it out for you so you don't have these radical, you don't hear these radical changes in frequency response as you move your head from kind of inch by inch. And uh, kind of SonarWorks measurement software is really built, kind of one of the cornerstones is it's built around this insight. So we do not try to do like a single point measurement. We really work with the average of the area that's kind of intelligently calculated to mimic the way a human being hears. So we're kind of working with the reality of a human being and not the reality of a measurement microphone. And then the other important aspect of the measurement software that is important is that we do like 37 measurement points around the listening spot of the engineer. And our software is unique with the fact that it can actually locate the microphone with each measurement. So it actually kind of draws itself a map of the relative spacing of these points in the room. And that actually gives two important things. One is it actually allows the software to kind of understand these measurements in context and kind of uh, do the right calculation of the average profile. But the other thing is it actually allows for a really easy and consistent user guidance of the method. So that actually if I do the measurement in this room or you travel over here and also do the measurement in this room or you actually do the measurement in your room, the method that we apply using SonarWorks Reference will actually be very consistent because uh, the software is actually asking you to hit the very specific points around very specific places 
in your studio and making sure that you actually do that without asking you to read like a very thick and boring manual. So it really enables this consistency of how the method is used and how then this average is calculated that actually delivers the same consistent reference sound across different users, across different locations, and enables then not only some sort of random improvement saying, hey, we thought that these things might sound better in your room, but it actually allows us to talk about driving everything towards the same reference sound standard across different places. So if you work on a track in your room and you send it over to your friend in another room, in another city, or maybe even another continent, then uh, you are actually hearing very much the same thing when you're listening to a set of calibrated speakers. So that's kind of uh, the other important thing. And the third important thing is that we actually apply the same calibration targets for speakers as well as for headphones. So headphones we measure in our lab so the user doesn't have to measure them. But also for the headphones, we strive to achieve frequency response-wise for you as a listener, the same frequency response as that of the calibrated speakers. And uh, when we were still allowed to travel, we were often doing, doing these studio demos where you can actually measure a set of speakers and then uh, also set up as calibrated headphones and allow the user to compare and see that actually frequency response-wise, it really, really sounds very similar. And that enables a lot of kind of portability and ability to work like while traveling or late at night when you can't blast your speakers or in different uh, places where you don't really have access to speakers. So it's really this portability between headphone use cases and speaker use cases. That's also one of the unique things behind Sonarworks. That's interesting, this idea of linearity and portability. I did an interview with Alex Oana from Audio Test Kitchen, mm -hmm. and he yeah. he pointed out to me that one of the reasons that lots of studios at one point started installing SSL consoles was so that you could record at one studio, go to another one, and have it pretty much sound the same. Now, I'm not sure how much uh, that SSL console imparts its own sound. It seems like you know the room and the position of the speakers would also have a big effect, but still, I, oh, I understand sort of people's pursuit of this idea of like, let's figure out how we can create some consistency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's especially kind of nowadays when everything is moving so fast towards the reality where music is actually more and more produced over distance and in different types of home studios, this kind of ability to work on the same platform of reference sound, I think is more important than ever because kind of, I don't know, 20 years ago when kind of most of the hit songs were kind of still mixed and mastered in some of the kind of uh, high-end uh, studios under the big labels or whatever, that reality, I mean, it's still real for a few musicians, but for the majority, it's kind of uh, not the reality anymore. Sure. And this kind of mobile, portable, global world really asks for a consistency, I think, in sound. So from what you, your description of the way Reference 4 works, um, one of the things that I'm understanding is that if I were to try to just replicate the same thing at home in my own studio without Reference 4, I could take 37 measurements around my room, average them together, and then create some sort of complementary EQ in a manual way, or I could use some kind of FIR filter creator with some auto things. Anyway, I could do a lot of that manually, but I'm not going or I don't even know how to localize that microphone in the space. How does Reference 4 use that location information in its final result? So, I mean, there are these 
two things that kind of it uses the localization information for. One is this ability to see the measurement points in context, kind of in this relative map between each other. And then uh, we're talking about an average, but it's not that simple in the sense that kind of how then you combine this spatial information to actually calculate the profile is kind of one of the, one of the secret sources. And then uh, the other thing is this kind of consistency of user interface. I mean, sure, there are kind of tools like Rev or some other that kind of, or Smart, that allow you kind of, if you want to geek out about how you measure your room, then you can kind of measure all sorts of parameters and kind of uh, do your own thing. And there are people who do that, and I don't kind of hold anything against them, obviously. I mean, that's a perfectly cool thing to do, but then you have to realize that you are then in full control and taking full responsibility for the thing that you are measuring, for the thing that you are tuning. And uh, I think, I mean, one of the analogies that I like about our software is if you talk about the kind of visual design world, right, then there is uh, Photoshop and there is Instagram. Uh, I mean, there is Photoshop, it has gazillions of features, you have all the freedom that you want creatively, there is like this thick uh, Photoshop Bible, and you can probably spend like good five to ten years actually mastering the tool. And once you do that, then you can create wonders, and there is no limit to kind of how you can express your imagination through kind of uh, visual design. But there is also Instagram that's kind of more focused towards people who don't want to invest five years in kind of mastering that art, and they just want kind of to push a button, snap a pretty picture, be done with it, and move on with their lives. So as I see the music creator world, most of the people, I mean, there are some people, obviously, who like to kind of geek out about room acoustics, but there are less and less of those people, and most of the people I know among our kind of users is people who are actually very passionate about music, and they would want to spend as much time as possible actually thinking about music and creating music. And the fact that the music from their studio doesn't translate that well to the outside world is just a problem that they would like to get rid of as quickly and as seamlessly as possible. So our philosophy behind building the product is also kind of to give them that ability. We're always kind of thinking, hey, how can we ask less questions to the user? How can we make it even more seamless? How can we kind of smooth out all the workflows so that the user can be as, I mean, the ideal user experience from our perspective would be you install Sonarworks, you press one button, the system says you're calibrated, kind of your sound is good, you can go back to your creativity and you can say thank you and do that. So that's the kind of ideal user interface. So unfortunately we have to ask the user to do more things, but the less questions we can ask and the less, uh, the quicker we can let the user return to creating music, the more successful we think we are. So that's also kind of, I think, uh, a very important aspect to take into account. So totally. And I really appreciate how you guys have simplified the process uh, and also attempted to remove the opportunity for me to make errors, you know, as the as the end mm -hmm. user, because I can see an opportunity where if I really wanted to geek out about the measurements myself and pursue a path where I go and I get out a smart rig and I, and I take 37 measurements, but then I would also need to figure out a way to average them together in a weighted manner where I would say, okay, measurements one through 10, I want those to, you know, be worth 5% and measurements, you know, 11 through 20, I want those to be worth 7%. And then, you know, you build up this complex average. So you guys have thought all that stuff through 
and you know probably sure. save me you know a couple of days of trying to figure that all out and you know i'm able to do it in you know 10 minutes I would or say, something i would say i would say more i mean ultimately the real test of what we do is uh, kind of once you really do the calibration and then you mix your song on this new reference sound then the real test to whether we're bringing value to you is hey is it now translating better are you getting a better result sooner are you able to deliver better sounding song than you could before so that's the real test and the trick with actually finding that right method of measurement and calculating the profile and there are kind of more psychoacoustical and acoustical things that kind of go into the equation but is really arriving at the curve where you can say okay this actually works this actually helps things translate and uh, with sonarworks i mean we really get users every day somebody writes to our support saying hey thank you like before i was doing 10 cycles back and forth to my car to check my mix and now since i installed sonarworks hey i just uh, did one cycle to the car and i liked everything about it like uh, so <laughs> yeah. kind of uh, there are these really user stories coming in, so we're quite confident that the sound that we deliver actually helps people get their translation faster. There was one uh, one engineer whom we met actually at, at the NAMM show last year, and he was like, hey guys, like, guess what? I installed this uh, reference, and the first song I mixed on it, I got a Grammy. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's funny. So, it works. <laughs> Martins, I, I, I know that you, you mentioned that you have measured a lot of systems and studios, and you also mm-hmm. have seen and, and done a lot of support for the people who are using Reference 4. So I wondered if you could sort of, you know, aggregate some of this learning and share with us some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are maybe new to studio monitor setup and calibration. What are some of the things people are doing wrong in terms of placement, aim, and then, I don't know, other like maybe EQ things that they're doing? I would say kind of, if you talk about specifically studio systems, uh, I mean, and the kind of installment of the physical things, I think the kind of biggest thing I would say is not the way how people set their systems up. It's actually how much of this historical attachment to the hardware is keeping people in the frame of mind uh, that says, hey, it's all about the speaker or it's all about the headphone or it's all about the room uh, kind of tuning. I mean, the way how I find most people think about it is basically... First, I should get the kind of best speakers I want and then I can get. And then if I have more money, I should invest more into speakers. Then at some point they say, okay, I probably should invest into room tuning. And kind of, I mean, and for the speakers, you can probably, I mean, there are very, very kind of uh, affordable speakers. Then there are like the $1,000 a pair to $2,000 a pair speakers. And then you quickly get into the five to $10,000 pair range, right? And then usually people think that, hey, it's probably if I can't get into the $10,000 per pair of speakers range, then kind of, uh, then that's my limitation. And then if you talk about room tuning, then you quickly get into like, hey, you can do some small job yourself, but then you quickly also get into 10 to like, I mean, unlimited 
amount of dollars that you can invest into room tuning. And I think kind of people really think that that's the goal and that's the limitation. Whereas really, I think kind of now in the day and age with where we are with like software tuning technology like ours, I mean, by all means, we are not saying that we are kind of the replacement of room tuning. You have to get a decent pair of speakers and you have to get a decent amount of room tuning. You can't really go into a glass cubicle and then kind of expect everything to be solved by uh, calibrating your speakers with SonarWorks. It wouldn't work. You have to invest in speakers and you have to invest into room tuning. But really the place where the kind of return on investment from SonarWorks uh, becomes really your best way to improve your studio sound is closer kind of than people think. I would say kind of, I don't know, invest your first thousand dollars into getting a pair of speakers, then invest your next thousand or two thousand dollars into room tuning. But from that point on, SonarWorks will, will really kind of be the thing that kind of takes you to a, gets you to a much, much better place than additional two or four thousand dollar investment into room tuning. So we've had like a real story. We visited a friend in LA who is kind of working from his home studio and producing for a band. And we were kind of, somebody introduced us and he went there to show what SonarWorks can do. And after we set it up and we calibrated the studio, he was like, whoa guys, you know, I had these $4,000 speakers and I was thinking that that's my limit. That's why kind of I can't really get my mixes to translate as well as I could. So I was thinking of selling some more gear, selling those speakers and getting myself a $10,000 speakers. But now apparently I don't have to do that because it's way better than I thought it would be with these more expensive speakers. So that I think is kind of the biggest, the biggest thing I think I see. I mean, I mean, obviously, but that's very rarely where you see kind of, uh, some very massive errors in placement, like people placing their speakers asymmetrically or kind of, I mean, most of the people already know that, hey, like this equilateral triangle is the best uh, kind of placement and you have to place the speakers at the ear level. So that's kind of, I haven't seen those problems too often, but uh, this kind of thinking that, hey, I mean, with a few hundred dollars worth of headphones and the calibration, you're probably better off than with a 2000 uh, pair of headphones. So. Right. I like what you're saying about don't put the cart before the horse. So I can't just go get some speakers out of the trash in the alley that I found with blown drivers and then install sure. SonarWorks and expect it to sound amazing. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, there is kind of, kind of you have to get a decent pair of speakers, but most, many more people are there already than kind of they think they are. So. so Martins, let's look at some questions that people sent me from Facebook. Alex Ben says... I'd love to know how it generates the, I guess it is talking about reference four. I'd love to know how it generates mm -hmm. the phase plot of the measurements. My Genelec 8030As have one full wrap measured in smart, but it doesn't appear in mm -hmm. reference four. All right. So this is a deep technical question. What he's asking about is once you, when you look at the plugin or the system wide of SonarWorks, then you can select different curves that it's showing. And we're trying to be really transparent about what the plugin is doing to your audio. So you can turn on the phase response of the system. Uh, but what, and that I think is what he's referring to. But the phase response that the plugin is showing to you is only the phase response of the SonarWorks effect. So when we measure the speakers, we actually do not measure the phase response of the system. We only measure the frequency response of the system, so we don't really attempt to measure the phase response of his pair of Genelecs. What we're saying is that 
depending on the filter mode that you select inside the plugin, whether it's a zero, uh, whether it's a zero latency or is it a phase linear thing, then if you're in the zero latency mode, then the plugin introduces some change to the phase response of the audio signal coming through. So what this curve shows is the phase distortion, if you will, that the plugin is introducing to your audio and that's then layered on top whatever your, the phase response of your speakers are. So that's the answer to the question, I guess. Cool. Uh, so Kyle Marriott wants to know, can you ask if they are FIR based and tackle phase or just magnitude? We just covered part of that. So it's just magnitude, but the plugin yeah. does show uh, the resulting phase change from that magnitude change. So yeah, is the way you're applying the filters FIR based? Yes, so it's FIR based. When it's working in phase linear mode, then it's kind of full FIR. When it's working in the zero latency mode, then technically it's IIR that's implemented through the FIR. But yeah, cool. That's uh, zero latency is the minimum phase uh, filter. And then he asks about the latency. Is it fixed or variable? And it sounds like you have two settings. It's either going to be linear phase or minimum phase yeah we actually we actually have three. Oh, three. i okay. mean the kind of depending on the depending on the use case and the, really the preference of the user the trade-off is if you go for phase linear mode of the filter then it introduces latency to the system and that's kind of inevitable by the way the math of the phase linear filter works and so in some use cases that's okay and then people say hey i want this phase linearity of the system but of the plugin. But if you want to, like if you're tracking or you're working in some other kind of latency sensitive uh, tasks, then we also have in the other extreme, we have the zero latency mode that's then zero latency in the plugin. But then that costs you some change in the phase response. As far as we've tested, it's not really audible, but kind of, as I said, we're being transparent about what it does. So you can check what the phase response is in the curve in the plugin and then be your own judge about whether kind of it's okay in your use case but so in the zero latency mode then the plugin works as zero latency uh, that costs you some phase change and then there is the optimum mode that kind of introduces a little bit of latency but uh, kind of costs you a little bit of phase distortion so it's kind of trying to find the middle ground between the uh, between the other two choices. So there are these three modes. Uh, I guess one of the things in the question might be also, we have two ways how you can apply SonarWorks in your system. One is the plugin, that kind of, if you have like a serious production kind of uh, setup and rig, then that's the most robust way to introduce SonarWorks into your system while you're actually for your kind of mixing job. Uh, but we also have the system-wide, which is acts as a virtual sound card in your computer and then processes all the audio and then releases to the real output. And that enables you to kind of calibrate all the audio coming from your machine, like YouTube, Spotify, or whatever else you might want to use. And some users also find it more convenient to work for their DAW setup to kind of route it through the system-wide. But then because of this uh, virtual driver that then sits in your machine, that costs you additional latency. So the plugin, can run in true zero latency and the system-wide, even in the kind of zero latency mode, it still costs you the, the latency of the buffer of the virtual sound card. And, That's kind of... Uh, and does that have to do with the... We're looking in... Does that have to do with the sample rate? Can that be changed? So the next question no, is exactly uh, it has that. to that. It has to do with how the operating system kind of uh, handles 
sound card devices and kind of what are the operating system requirements for buffering uh, audio that's kind of going to the uh, audio device. So we're looking for ways how to uh, how to optimize it by kind of thinking about new ways how to write these virtual drivers. But yeah, at the moment, it's kind of limited by the operating system. Okay, cool. So John Burton had a question about that in this system-wide implementation. So John, they're working on that. Ben Davey, do they have any plans to add profiles for in-ear monitors to the headphone side of things? Reference 4 is amazing on my closed and open back headphones, but would love to be able to balance out my ultimate ears as well. Generally, we're constantly working on uh, adding new headphones to the database. So I think somewhere in the support page, we have a place where people can vote in and say, kind of, hey, I would like you to add this or that headphone. And then we're kind of uh, averaging all of that to kind of decide which models do we proceed with. So uh, generally, we can calibrate both uh, over ears and in ears. So the, it's just a matter of where ultimate ears is currently in our pipeline. So I'll. Uh, I'll check it and uh, add another vote to Ultimate Ears uh, yeah. in the pipeline. And Ben, it sounds like you can uh, go find that place on the support page and vote yourself. Brandon Crowley says, yes, I love Reference 4 and use it for both mixing and listening purposes. I'd like to know what's next for Reference 4. It seems like it's already the complete package. Could studio monitor emulation be in its future? The short answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, as we speak, actually, kind of today, I had a couple of meetings. We are currently really intensively working on planning the reference five. I hope to kind of be able to come with kind of uh, news in the coming months about exactly what it's going to be. But this uh, emulation is one of the uh, one of the features we're kind of now intensively thinking about. So the answer is yes, it could. Cool. I don't want to make any hard promises yet, <laughs> but uh, that's one of the things on the table. Well, Martins, you've made this great product. A lot of people love it, and it seems like everything is just going great for you. But... Uh, I'm sure that you've had some challenges and some painful moments in your career. So I wondered if you would tell us about maybe one of the biggest and most painful mistakes you've made on the job and how you recovered. All right. There's actually a very interesting story behind this one. Reference is kind of uh, where we started out as a company. So we built this tool for calibrating speakers and headphones for the music creators. But actually, since day one when we started the company we've always kind of dreamed bigger and we've always asked ourselves the question about so hey what is the ultimate answer to the question about the perfect sound what is the ultimate sound that everybody is thriving for and uh kind of early on we realized that there is the creator world but obviously there's also the listener world so once you really create the song in the studio. I mean, Reference 4 helps you get the song to translate better, but what does that translation really mean? It means that it still sounds maybe okay on everything, but it still sounds different and maybe not perfect on anything because all the consumer devices out there still have various discrepancies in the frequency responses and the way how they sound. So once you create your piece of art and you let it out to the world for the people to listen, then I've met 
engineers who say, hey, I can't really listen to my music outside my studio because my ears bleed about how wrong it really sounds. So there is this, even if, even with the reference four, you still face the problem of, hey, so how do people outside in the world really listen in to my music? And kind of early on, we've kind of dreamed about, hey, if we have this software technology that can kind of um, change and control the way speakers and headphones sound, why don't we kind of go all the way and solve the translation problem, kind of not only across music creators, but also across the end listeners, and then everybody would be listening to the same reference, everybody would be hearing the same thing, and everybody would be perfectly happy, and we would have kind of killed the translation problem, which is very much possible technologically, I think, this day and age. So, and based on that dream, we created a product that was called TrueFi. Maybe you maybe you noticed it. It was yeah, like three, four website. years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was kind of uh, the thing that we brought to the consumer world, saying, hey, now you can actually listen to the sound that artists heard in the studio. This is kind of how you should hear it. And we thought that that's going to be like a ta-da and kind of, and it will all go great. Long story short, and coming to kind of the biggest mistake perhaps, is that it ended up with the realization that not enough people in the consumer world really liked that sound. Kind of some people were like, yay, I always wanted to listen to the way how people hear things in the studio, but that was eventually a minority of the people who listened to it. And that was like a kind of a low moment for us because we invested quite a bit of uh, effort and uh, kind of uh, parts into building that product. And it sort of uh, didn't take off as good as possible. And from the mistake perspective, I think what was happening is we kind of thought that uh, perhaps we can kind of dictate to the consumers kind of uh, and teach them what good sound is (laughs) and, I don't know, what good music is (laughs) or kind of what good taste is. Uh, We could kind of come from from top down and say, hey, hey, listeners, this is kind of how your sound should be. And that didn't really turn out to be that way. And uh, that was probably the lesson learned that you can't really kind of uh, dictate too many things to the market. You can only kind of listen to kind of what they, I mean, you can only work from the place where people are and kind of you can only solve the problems that they think they have and then kind of you can work from there. So, but then long story short, how we recovered from it, we decided to, we've been always like a data and kind of rational thinking approach driven company. So we kind of said, hey, this is, interesting let's kind of uh, let's double down on that problem let's figure out what's really going on so we launched a probably biggest ever research into we launched the biggest ever research into consumer sound preference to discover okay so you don't like this so tell us what do you really like and we have like close to 50,000 users participating in the in the preference discovery test to discover that, hey, if you take, I mean, the long story short is that everybody likes different sounds. I mean, there is, uh, if you take about, there is a difference in how people, what people, what sound people genuinely like, like some people like a lot of bass, some people genuinely hate it, some people like a lot of treble, some people genuinely hate it. And uh, there is also difference in how we hear physically and our hearing changes with age. So all of these things combined, I think, is kind of the underlying reality of these kind of religion wars between, hey, is Beats 
a good sounding headphone or is it something that kind of we should kill everybody whoever listened to it and for <laughs> forbid it through law or is Sennheiser the right sound or I don't know is Grado the right sound so I think kind of below all of that if you kind of unpack unpack it and look at this from a data perspective then uh, really there are these genuine differences in what sound people like and there is this difference in our hearing and uh, from that insight we have now built what is what you can also see on our web page which is the latest product that we've released which is called sound id which is this idea that you can find your personally perfect sound through discovering your preference and through adjusting the sound to your hearing so we're still using the studio reference sound as the starting point. We think that that's the kind of right place to start, like the way the artist wanted the music to sound. But then on top of that, we can discover the user's uh, preference for sound and we can adjust it for, your hearing, for his hearing or her so that when they listen to the music of the artist, they're actually hearing the interpretation of it, if you will, that most suits their taste and has the best chance of actually emotionally engaging with the artist. So for comparison from these research numbers, we now see that if you talk about a single fixed sound of a single fixed headphone sound as it comes out of the box, then it's going to be the best possible sound for no more than 17% of the population. Oh, wow. So no matter how good job a headphone company is doing in their R&D, they're going to hit the sweet spot for no more than 17% of the population if they do the best job possible and if they kind of err on that, then they are going to hit a smaller percentile of the population. Whereas if you personalize the sound with, say, sound ID, then we kind of see that currently over 80% of people actually say, hey, I like this sound better than whatever was the original sound of my headphones. So it's a huge improvement. And as we evolve the technology, it's actually kind of getting even better. So it feels that we're really onto something. It's still fresh, kind of, we just announced sound ID this year. And... Uh, we're really kind of just uh, getting started with it, so fingers crossed, but that's kind of, uh, in a way, I think we feel that we have found the ultimate answer to the question about sound quality, and that is that the ultimate answer is individual. It's kind of uh, not one size fits all. It's actually individual for everybody of us, and the definition of perfect is really a personal uh, matter, and uh, we're kind of uh, working to get that into the consumer reality and also I think through that we can solve the translation problem for music creators because then you can kind of create it on the reference and be sure that whoever is listening to it will not be listening to like a random EQ that happens to be their headphones but is going to be listening to it through an EQ that's actually kind of intelligently matched to that person's preferences. Wow well I find this idea of personalized listening really interesting and as you were talking, I was reminded of two things. The first one was um, we just wrapped up Live Sound Summit 2020, and one of the presenters was Laureen Bohannon, who mixes in-ear monitors for mm -hmm. Michael Bolton, Lizzo, among others. And she gave a presentation about not only how people's hearing changes with age, but also uh, with gender. And so it's interesting mm -hmm. that she is kind of a younger woman mixing these in-ear monitors for this older man. And so she was talking about how for her, she can barely stand to listen to the mix from Michael Bolton because for her, it's <laughs> way too loud, way too bright. But that totally makes sense for him uh -huh. as an aging man who's uh -huh. like lost a lot of his high end and his hearing in general. Mm -hmm. 
And the other thing it makes me think of is hearing aids. So I have a friend who's an audiologist and I've interviewed her on this podcast a few years ago. And I also worked on a conference for a hearing aid manufacturer about a year ago. And what was interesting for me that I learned from that conference is that the people doing sales have commissioned certain research to show that even people who don't necessarily have a lot of hearing loss still enjoy like an improved um, experience of their lives when they have a hearing aid with some filters because the way they tune those things is they measure your hearing first and then they, similar to what we everything we've been talking about today, they apply some corrective EQ kind of processes. That's one of the things that the hearing aid does. And so even people who just have like a tiny bit of hearing loss just from age, not from maybe anything intense, um, find that they can mm-hmm. like, they can understand people better. They enjoy music better and things like that. So, so yeah, that seems like this, there's a, there's a big opportunity for this kind of personalized listening experience. Yeah. We crushed we it. We, kill, we killed the topic of personalized listening. <laughs> okay uh so uh i've got a few short questions here to wrap up martins what's one book that's been immensely helpful to you yeah the one thing the one book that really comes to my mind uh is uh actually a book called organizational culture and leadership by edgar shine i read it i think at some point when uh, our team was uh, kind of transitioning from being this kind of six people kind of uh little family to kind of growing bigger and we kind of are more and more getting into different types of kind of situations that kind of didn't fit into my uh, model of the reality at the time and i think this was kind of uh, i mean on a one on one end it's kind of a really simple message from the book that hey there are different cultures and they're eventually based on different kind of beliefs and that's why there are different types of kind of uh, miscommunications between these cultures but it's kind of I really like how that book goes uh, quite kind of um, deep and wide into unpacking that subject and kind of putting it together in a very practical way for what it means for us on an uh, uh, on an everyday life. I think that kind of uh, at that point was quite of an uh, eye opener for me that kind of helped me helped me realize better how uh, yeah how to kind of how different people are kind of among occupations among nationalities among their backgrounds and kind of uh, uh, where that all is coming from and how to kind of uh, make lives better for different people cool so martins where is the best place for people to follow your work i'm not i have to kind of say that i'm not too active on uh, social media but i have an instagram account i have a facebook account and i post from time to time different things there so i would say kind of yeah instagram and facebook are probably the places you can find me by my name and surname there. There are not too many Martins Popelises out there. So. Sure. Well, Martins Popelis, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Sound Design This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. It featured two original songs by a band called Spare Parts. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, and Twitter, or visit their website, SparePartsMusic.com. Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis, Learn Stage Lighting, Joel, Sinqui, Bob, Pedro, Martin, Roadie Free Radio, Scott, Ross, Voyager Sound, John, Dave, DC Sound Op, Nicholas, Kuba, Chris, and Terry. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1.00. 
over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Thank you.